Towards the end of this service, we're going to be singing a beautiful old song, Nothing But the Blood. And this message is basically a 30-minute-plus introduction to that song. Let me read you the first uh, stanza and the chorus. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What does that mean? What does that mean? Why do we need it? Do we need it? And if so, how would it come? What would it mean to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus? Those are questions worth asking, and questions like that demand an answer. And our text takes us right into those answers. Uh, We're going to be looking at Leviticus chapter 4, starting in verse 1, extending, you might say, on into chapter 5, verse 13. Originally, this was going to be a really, really long reading. And thanks to the mercy, the common sense that Jesus gave me this morning, and uh, the, the graciousness of uh, the guys back there in the AV booth uh, snipping and snapping on the, uh, the slides. We're actually only going to read verse, chapter 4, verses 1 to 12, and then we're going to skip the remainder of chapter 4. I'm going to talk about it. We're going to skip, though, over to chapter 5, verses 1 to 13. I do want to give you a map, just kind of a picture of where this is going. There are a lot of twists and turns and uh, a lot of repetition, and it's well worth uh, knowing what the overall flow of this text looks like uh, as we're reading it. So were we to read the whole thing, this is what you would hear, okay? So chapter 4, verses 1 through 21, is broken up into two parts, and the first part has to do with purification offerings that are being given, offered unto the Lord right in the tent, right in the tabernacle itself, Okay, inside the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. That's what you see in chapters uh, 1 through 25, actually. uh, Verses, excuse me, verses 1 through 21 is in the tent, purification offerings. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 21, purification offerings within the tent. And then chapter 4, verses 22 through 25 are more offerings along those same lines, but are offered not within the tabernacle, but in the court of the tabernacle, okay? And then you get to chapter five, which we will be reading, and verses one to six are examples of cases in which such offerings were appropriate. And then verses seven to 13 are alternate ways that those offerings could be given. I'll prompt you as we get there, okay? Just wanna give you kind of some road markers, some things to pay attention to as we're looking at this uh, text. All right, so we're going to read chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Leviticus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Leviticus, chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. 
And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, If anyone sins unintentionally in any of the Lord's commandments about things not to be done, and does any one of them, if it is the anointed priest who sins, thus bringing guilt on the people, then he shall offer for the sin that he has committed a bull from the herd without blemish to the Lord for a sin offering. He shall bring the bull to the entrance of the tent of meeting, before the Lord and lay his hand on the head of the bull and kill the bull before the Lord. And the anointed priest shall take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. And the priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle part of the blood seven times before the Lord in front of the veil of the sanctuary. And the priest shall put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of the fragrant incense before the Lord that is in the tent of meeting and all the rest of the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And all the fat of the bull of the sin offering he shall remove from it, the fat that covers the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins and the long lobe of the liver that he shall remove with the kidneys just as these are taken from the ox of the sacrifice of the peace offerings. And the priest shall burn them on the altar of burnt offerings. But the skin of the bull and of its flesh, all its flesh, with its dung, with its, with its head, its legs, its entrails, and its dung, all the rest of the bull he shall carry outside the camp to a clean place to the ash heap, and he shall burn it on a fire of wood. On the ash heap it shall be burned up. Okay, that was verses 1 through 12. That's what I mentioned before was one of the offerings that is made inside the tent of meeting. That's given when, in the case of when the high priest, the chief priest, has committed sin. You see something very much like that, but it's a little different, when you have a sin committed by the community. And that's what you see following in verses 13 to 25. Okay? Uh, excuse me, in uh, 13 to 21. And then we, I'm going to skip also verses 22 to 25, and these are sacrifices that would be made uh, in cases outside of the temple, outside of the tabernacle, outside of the tent, in the courtyard, outer area, okay? We'll talk about that. What's the significance of that in a minute? Now we skip over to chapter 5. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. These are some examples of cases when this would be appropriate to do. If anyone sins and that he hears a public adjudication to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. Or if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean animal or a carcass of an unclean livestock or a carcass of unclean swarming things, and it is hidden from him, and he has become unclean, and he realizes his guilt, or if he touches human uncleanness, of whatever sort the uncleanness may be, with which one becomes unclean, and it is hidden from him. When he comes to know it and realizes his guilt, or if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it is hidden from him. When he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt in any of these, when he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord his compensation for the sin that he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat, for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. And now we get into the alternate ways that this could be done in certain cases. So again, worth reading. But if he cannot afford a lamb, and he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed two turtle doves or two pigeons, 
one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering. He shall bring them to the priest who shall offer first the one for the sin offering. He shall wring its head from its neck, but shall not sever it completely. And he shall sprinkle some of the blood of the sin offering on the side of the altar, while the rest of the blood shall be drained out at the base of the altar. It is a sin offering. Then he shall offer the second for a burnt offering according to the rule. And the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin that he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. But if he cannot afford two turtle doves or two pigeons, then he shall bring as his offering for the sin that he has committed a tenth of an ephah of fine flour for a sin offering. He shall put no oil on it and shall put no frankincense on it, for it is a sin offering. And he shall bring it to the priest, and the priest shall take a handful of it as its memorial portion and burn this on the altar on the Lord's food offerings. It is a sin offering. Thus the priest shall make atonement for him for the sin which he has committed in any one of these things, and he shall be forgiven, and the remainder shall be for the priest as in the grain offering. All right, well, such is the reading. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this passage. We thank you for what you were doing there at that time uh, to instruct the hearts and minds of your people to direct them, uh, to direct us, really, uh, still these years later as we look back, uh, as, as they were being taught as to who it was to come and why he had to come, and we can see as we look back at these offerings, these sacrifices, uh, why it was that Jesus had to come and what it is that he has done. Uh, so we ask that you would help us to learn, help us to see how you, Lord, are our ultimate purification sin offering, and we are clean. As we come in your name, we pray this in your name. Amen. One of my favorite films is Amazing Grace. I believe it was 2006, uh, Amazing Grace. Uh, it is the story of William Wilberforce and his work with the abolitionist movement uh, in Great Britain in the late uh, 17 and early 1800s uh, to be, get rid of, in Great Britain of the African slave trade. Uh, there's a scene that every time I see it, I am, I, I'm just so moved, every, every single time. Uh, it's Wilberforce is coming to visit an aged and now blind John Newton. And Newton is in the process of composing what he is calling now his confession. That is to say, the record of his years. That's right, John Newton of Amazing Grace fame is composing at this time, late in his life, an, an, a, uh, a telling a true, the true telling, a candid, sober telling of his years as his, in his participation as a captain on a slave ship. And this is his confession. And he is working with Wilberforce in the abolitionist movement, and he is giving him this confession, pages and pages, and so much documentation there that he's passing over to Wilberforce that the abolitionists uh, would be able to use. He is grieving in this scene uh, thinking back over so many faces, the names of which he could not remember, but what he could remember was the beastly way these human beings were treated. And he's grieving, deeply, deeply grieving. And the scene in the movie, the line in the movie that just undoes, un, un, I don't know, makes me undone, um, is this line, and actually if you've got it quoted, if you've got it printed, it's in the quotes and notes, it's the second of the last one there. 
And uh, as oftentimes is the case in these autobiographical films, historical films, they will take writings from that person's life and transpose them into dialogue. And that's what you see here. It's this quote, what he says in the film is actually taken from a letter. And this is what he said. My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. Which brings us to Leviticus and the need for the cleansing of sin. So it brings us also to the Leviticus question. Those of you who've been a part of this uh, little series for a few weeks, uh, you know that the question that we're dealing with here because of the context and the historical flow of the events from Exodus into Leviticus, the question that Leviticus is dealing with is how can a holy God dwell with an unholy people? How is, how is that possible? Sin. Sin brings not only endangerment, Sin brings defilement. Sin leaves us guilty. Sin leaves us unclean. And this offering that's oftentimes referred to as the purification offering. Now, I know what I just read, it, it's called the sin offering. Maybe if you have other translations, you might see the same thing. But a lot of scholars recognize perhaps a better way to refer to it because of what it actually does and is pointing towards would be a purification offering. The idea being that it is pointing towards a cleansing, the need for cleansing, of, uh, for ritual purity, uh, the cleansing of what is referred to here as unintentional sin. You may have noticed that a few times as we were reading it. If we'd read the whole thing, you would have seen it a few times more. That is to say, a sin of this type, not, not um, so much done out of rebellion, but uh, waywardness. Not sin of defiance, but sin just of straying. Not sin, as the Old Testament refers to as, of the high hand, but unintentional. Uh, what do we learn in all of this? What do we learn in all of this? We'll get, let's go back to the Newton quote. The greatness of our sin and the greatness of our Savior. Or if I can put it in another way, uh, we need to grasp the greatness of God's provision. We need to grasp the greatness of God's provision, and that is pictured here in the purification offering, the greatness of God's provision for His people. Uh, so let's take a look at this. Simple, really just two points, and I'm going right with Newton here. Uh, the greatness of our sin and the greatness of our Savior, and how you see these two things uh, here in this, this offering. So, the greatness of our sin, looking at, at that, let's, let's consider here for a moment the dishonor of sin. Um, how do we think of sin? How do we define sin? Uh, the, a, uh, the common definition, you, you may know, actually, the word sin that's translated here, the Hebrew word, actually literally means a, a missing of a mark, okay? Um, it's kind of interesting when you consider, well, there must then be a mark, Right? So it's a, it's a missing of a mark. How do we think of, of sin? Uh, the, uh, the children's catechism uh, refers to sin, defines sin this way. Sin is any lack of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. That's the children's catechism. That's pretty weighty. Uh, the Hebrew understanding of sin is that and more. That and more. 
As one scholar has put it, uh, sin is a culpable violation of shalom. A culpable violation of shalom. I'll put it another way, not the way things are supposed to be. That's the way to understand sin. Uh, the, the Hebrew understanding understood sin to have a, an element of dishonor to it. Uh, affecting, infecting. Not just the sinner, him or herself, but everyone around them. In the blast radius, if you will, uh, of that sin. And the blast radius is perhaps larger than we Westerners typically think. So let me give you an example. So oftentimes, well, in days gone by, in our, in our nation, and still today in traditional cultures, when a child disobeys, that oftentimes is recognized as bringing shame and dishonor to the family. That's not so much the way we think of it today in our culture, but in traditional cultures, that's still today in other parts of the world, the way that is, is thought of. Well, that's really in many ways the way the, the Israelite, the Hebrew mind, and God is showing them we ought to understand sin. Sin uh, is, affects the sinner, their family, the community, and in this case, in this context, indeed, it brings defilement to God's holy dwelling place. And we see that as, as uh, Jay Scalar in his wonderful commentary in Leviticus put it, it, it's like sin brings the defilement, it's like it brings this unholy dust down upon everything. If you're going to watch this, this just came to me. If you watch the Super Bowl tonight, at the end of the game, they're going to blow all this confetti up in the air, right? And then it settles down and it goes everywhere. You know, pray for the poor custodian after the, the game. Imagine that as being the contagion of sin and the shame and the dishonor that it brings not just the sinner, but everyone around them. That's the biblical way of understanding this. And you see that here, the dishonor that sin brings, the greatness of our sin, the gradations of sin, the gradations of the offense. You see that reflected here as well with the different ways that uh, the, the, uh, the offering had to be made depending on who you were. You may remember the, the section that we read from chapter 4, verses 1 to 12. When it's the high priest who sins, he has to do something different than it, that, well, he, something has to be done for him different than anybody else. Or when the community of which he is a part sins, something different has to be done than in any other case. Well, why? Because in the, in the case of the high priest, he has the potential in his position to lead so many people into sin. In his sin. And again, to be, bring even greater shame to the Lord's name, because who does he represent? The Lord himself. But it's even more than that. Defying the way, again, our Western minds tend to think. If you look in, in verse um, 3 of chapter 4, you see that actually the sin of the, the, the priest brings guilt on the people. There's a, a profound corporate sense to this in the way God sees sin, not just in an individualistic way. 
So, how, how, how did this express itself? You see that the, the, you have to, if it's the case of the priest, you have to go in as close as you can, I mean, right up to the curtain within the tabernacle, just shy of the Holy of Holies. You've got to take the blood that far. And it's the most pricey, the, most, the, the costliest of the offerings, a bull. And there's a different kind of manipulation or, or, or steps to take, sequences of steps to take with the blood. And, and you see that lessening as you read through chapter 4, depending on who the parties are. So again, it's, it's profound to consider. It's the gradations of, of the offense. Again, it's worth thinking about in the, in the greatness of our sin. The dishonor of sin, the gradations of the offense. And one last thing, the defiling of the tent. And this really is worth our considering because this is really what the, what the, the sacrifice, this offering was, was about. So sin brings not just defilement to the sinner and therein that person, man or woman, needs cleansing from that defilement but we see here that actually there is a defiling of the Lord's holy dwelling. And that's what this offering was about. The cleansing of the tabernacle. Sin could not just be overlooked. God in His holiness, God in His purity can't just pretend it didn't happen. You know, like we do in our families, we just pick up the rug and sweep, sweep, sweep and put it down and pretend that nothing's wrong. God doesn't operate that way. It has to be addressed. It has to be dealt with, and the sin cannot be allowed to live within, to exist within the camp. That may seem like such a small thing to us. I was even uh, reading this past week uh, in the news of two recalls that were done. Kind of interesting. One was because of a bacteria in shrimp, a recall, Another is this little bitty flaw in a microchip. Now, you may think, it's bacteria. You can't even see it. In a shrimp, for Pete's sake. What's the big deal? You eat it, you'll know what the big deal is. <laughs> a flaw in a microchip. Just a microchip. I mean, you can't, you, know, you can't hardly see it. You put that in your smartphone, you'll see the difference. The smallness to our mind, our assessment, is irrelevant. Irrelevant. It needs to be addressed. It has to be dealt with. So again, the greatness of our sin, the purity of, uh, of God's tent, raises a question. Before we move on to the second point, it raises a question. And we really need to think about this. Where is God's tabernacle today? Ever think about that? Where is His tent of meeting, his temple dwelling today. Right here, and I don't mean the physical space, I mean the people. The Apostle Paul is very clear on this point. Where is the temple of God today? Well, it starts with we as individuals. So you want to turn with me, keep your thumb there in Leviticus, go with me all the way, we're going a lot of pages to the right here, to 1 Corinthians, this is after the Gospels and Acts and Romans, you get to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul makes it very clear that we, we as individual disciples, followers of Jesus, are in fact uh, temples of the living God because we're indwelled by His Spirit. He says, chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? 
whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now, it's also worth noting the context of these words. The context of these words in the, chapter, in the flow of chapter 6, Paul is speaking to the sin of sexual immorality. And he says, look, the reason that you must avoid this and flee this is because you are a temple of the living God. You are in union with Jesus, and his Holy Spirit lives in you. So flee from this sin. Do not dabble in it. Do not experiment in it. And that's worth considering with any sin. But he's giving specific application here to sexual sin. Now, what Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians is not just that we as individuals, individual believers, are temples of the Spirit. If you go back a few chapters, he makes it clear that it's not just an individual sense in which we are the temple of the living God. We corporately also are the temple of the living God. So go back with me to 1 Corinthians 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses uh, 16 and 17. And, and by the way, the you here, it's the southern y'all. Okay, it's plural. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So the first text is addressing the sin of sexual immorality and drawing our attention to the fact that we are, as individuals, living temples of the living God. And now over here he's saying, uh, he's, draw, he, he's, he's speaking to this in the context, of not just the sin of sexual immorality, but the sin of disunity. And here again, he's driving at the point of the reality that we are the living temple of God and we need to reckon with that. We need to reckon with the fact that, oh my goodness, it is still possible today for God's tabernacle, for his tent, for his dwelling to be defiled. Just as it was in the days of Leviticus, so it is true today in our pride in our boasting, in our quick tempers and snap judgments, in our slander, in our gossip, in our backbiting, in the resentment that we hold one to another, in the grudges that we refuse to let go. That is all and so much more. And the apostles speak to this again and again and again in the New Testament. That is all a defiling of the temple. Friends, do you see how greatly we need God's provision? How profoundly every single one of us in this room needs God's provision, and it is pictured for us here in this purification offering, which then takes us to the second point, because boy, we need it. Not just the greatness of our sin, but the greatness of our Savior. The greatness of our Savior. His, his greatness so great, His love so great, that it begins with simply this. He longs to get our attention. He longs that we would just simply wake up and see some things. Uh, we see that here with, uh, in Leviticus. 
his desire to get his people's attention, you might say. Now, I recognize, of course, and we talked about this in the introduction a few weeks ago, that uh, this, this whole book, and of course the whole Pentateuch, is, is so removed from us, right? Culturally, historically, uh, in so many ways removed from us. And so it gets a little confusing. It's, it's hard to understand. You know, we, we, we will be looking at some more over the coming weeks of ritual impurity and ceremonial uncleanness and these kinds of things, and we kind of think, what the, what is that? What, what, is, what is that about? You know, this and that and the other thing and these. Well, it's worth noting. I just want to just kind of book, just you can write this down. We'll come back to it in the next few weeks. To be unclean was not necessarily sinful. To be unclean was not necessarily sinful, ritually unclean. To be ritually unclean was not necessarily inherently a sinful thing. That said, we'll talk about that in a few weeks. I know you're like, what? That said, ritual impurity is meant to be a metaphor for sin. Ritual impurity was meant to be understood as a symbol, as a metaphor, as a pointer towards sin. Or if I can put it this way, the call for the need for ritual outer purity was meant to point towards the need for moral inner purity. That's what you see going on there in those ceremonial rites. And, and of course, that impurity can be so hard to detect, right? So, because, you know, we're too close to it. We're so hard to see, especially in, in ourselves. Example, uh, I, I don't doubt, I hope, that um, not just no few of you, all of you, all of you have carbon monoxide detectors in your homes. Now, why would you need that besides just to fulfill codes? Why would you need a carbon monoxide detector in your home? Well, if, do you know what carbon monoxide is? It is a colorless, odorless gas so you can't see it, you can't smell it, that if breathed in in sufficient dosages will give you a headache, will make you nauseous, will eventually render you unconscious and kill you. Hence the need for the carbon monoxide detector. It's a mercy. Changing that thing's battery is not a pain. It's a good idea. It's a mercy to have this Danger, this need pointed out towards us. Well, that's sort of like what you see in, in a way, in a way, with these rites and these ceremonies. And the Lord, is, part of the greatness of his love is shown in his desire to get our attention in these things. But not just that, also his care for the impoverished, his care for the poor, his poor for the vulnerable, the least of these, according to, you know, in the world's eyes at least, um, the least of, of these. We see his heart reflected here. Uh, in his determination that we would defend and stand up for the vulnerable among us. Uh, for instance, in Exodus chapter 23, very early on, very early on, of course, into the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 23, verses 6 through 7, you hear something of the heart of God towards the vulnerable in society. He shall not, you shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge, and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. So many other places we could look at. And how do you see that here? Well, I'm glad you asked. Leviticus chapter 5, we read this earlier. 
there in that section towards the end of, of what we read, where you see his gracious provision given allowances for gray-dated sacrifices for those who could not afford a bull or a lamb, but rather a bird or even grain. You see, the heart of God for all of His people, that all would be able to draw near and know themselves to be washed clean. We need to really think about this. The heart of God, the heart of God towards the vulnerable and whatever that way that, and whatever that might mean. So we see the greatness of our Savior to get our attention. It's carefully impoverished. And the last but greatest, greatest that we could talk about here in terms of the revelation of His heart and the greatness of our Savior is His sending us the ultimate offering, the ultimate sin offering, the ultimate purification offering, Jesus, which fits the pattern. And we talked about this last week, that these offerings, the Lord describes them as, in fact, His provision for us. We didn't think of this. The Israelites didn't think of this. He provided this as a means by which to draw near. He provides Jesus the very fulfillment of all these sacrifices, the very fulfillment of all these uh, rites and, and offerings. Just so many places we could look in the, in the New Testament. I just want to look at two in the book of Hebrews. Uh, so if you are looking for this after a flow of T's, First uh, and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy and Titus, you get to uh, Hebrews, skipping Philemon. I mean, don't skip it, but I mean, just Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, uh, we read, After making purification for sins, he, that is Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So then moving from the first chapter of Hebrews to the last, chapter 13, chapter 13, verses 11 and 12, the author says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin, are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. And the implications of this are just astounding. Um, Jesus' cleansing work, full and final and complete, it is the ultimate soul's detergent or spirit astringent, uh, washed as deeply, as powerfully as you could possibly. It was read earlier, but let me just read this again. Hebrews 10, verses 10 through 14. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Such is the greatness of his purifying work. Utterly, finally, fully, we are cleansed. No need of repetition. No need at all. I think of like the futility of so many of our labors. 
And I'm not even talking about in a spiritual realm, just as, as a, by analogy, thinking about the futility of housework. Does it ever end? I mean, I wonder if that's what the author of Ecclesiastes had in mind. I mean, meaningless, meaningless. Uh, vanity, vanity. I mean, it, it, even the deepest of cleanings. You know, going down into places that normally you never touch to say nothing of ever see, but it's, you know, worthwhile doing every now and then, but you'll just have to do it again and again and again. Not with the cleansing work of Jesus. It is full and final and complete. Child of God, you've been washed clean. You've been washed clean. Now, but that might raise another question. Because we're talking about the, the reality that Jesus' work uh, full, has made us fully, finally, ultimately, completely, utterly clean, forgiven. The defilement utterly washed away. But do we not still, and I seem to remember the Bible saying this, do we not still have to ask for forgiveness? Do we not still, when I sin, which is continually, when I sin, do I not still have to ask for his forgiveness? I thought you said I was cleansed. I thought you said it was done. What am I to do? Which is it? Both. It's both. It's both because of the relational dynamics of walking with Jesus. For instance, uh, John 13 you want to go there with me? John 13, this is in the context of Jesus' washing of the disciples' feet. And he's trying to explain to Peter why it is that he needs to wash Peter's feet. And, and Peter is not understanding this and kind of pushing back a little bit and uh, thinking himself to be so humble and not so much. And uh, he said, picking up in the middle of this, uh, John chapter 13, beginning in verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. And that was why he said, not all of you are clean. What Jesus is saying here is that it is not an, an either or between having to choose between relying on Jesus' once for all cleansing and daily having to come to him asking for forgiveness. It's not an either or, it's a both and, and the reason is because of these relational dynamics. The question then is, are you clean? Have you been washed? That once and for all, ultimate, full, final cleansing, have you experienced that? What would be the signs of that? Let me give you just a few, just a few. A growing, not perfect, but growing still willingness to repent and confess your sin to him and to the people around you that you've hurt. A dependency upon Jesus manifested in time in his word, with him in his word, 
time with him in prayer. That's a sign. That's a sign. You know yourself to have been cleansed. A dependency, can I put it this way, on, on your brothers and sisters in Christ. Seeking them out in community. And by the way, I'm not saying you need to gin yourself up and, you know, now I need to do these things to make these signs show. No, no, that's not the point. Those are just, those are fruits of something deeper. So the question is, has that happened? And if it has happened, my goodness, be encouraged. Because they will come. They will inevitably come in the heart and in the life of the one who has experienced the cleansing of Jesus. We have a great Savior, a great Savior, and this purification offering is pointing us in this direction. Um, Let's just stop and pray. Let's stop and pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you, this is so incredibly significant, so incredibly, just, just astonishing. Um, some of us, all we can imagine is the filth. Uh, that's, that's all we can see. Um, sometimes we are preoccupied. We confess here now that many of us are preoccupied with what we see as the defilement in others' lives. And that's probably pointing to a bit of defilement in our own. And we ask for your mercy. Would you help us to see uh, what it costs you to wash us clean? And we can come back to you now, at this very moment, and ask for your forgiveness in that, uh, and for our arrogance and our folly and our deep forgetfulness. Um, some of us here just this morning, it's not that. It's just we're just burdened. We're just burdened uh, by what we've done by what we left undone, by the thing we said, uh, by the thing that was left unsaid, uh, by the horrific thoughts that if anybody knew, they wouldn't speak another word to us. Uh, We just feel ourselves to be plagued. Oh, would you help us to know that before you, we are clean. And we need not listen to the voice of these false accusations anymore. We thank you for all that was pictured in those offerings. Thank you for how you, Jesus, are the accomplishment and fulfillment of all these things. Indeed, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We stand in a very long line of people who have needed this. So we're in very good company. Pray in your name. Amen.